The details are not the details. They make the design. Charles Eames Hey, Angela, and welcome to this episode at the She Chronicles. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and for allowing me to dive into your professional background and where you've been and where you plan on going and uh, just really dive into everything about you, professionally speaking, of course. (laughs) You know, you're one of those people that I loved connecting with when I first met you. and, And then we obviously live in different parts of the province, so we can't really see each other. So this is this is great. I'm glad we're finally connecting again, apart from Instagram and texting. Thanks. I, you know what? What's really funny, when I kind of tried to think about how we met, I'm just not sure because we worked in the same office, but I feel like I would pass by you and I would just recognize you. So I would say hi. I didn't really know you. And then I don't know, something just happened. Something just happened. I don't remember because I was thinking about that this morning too. Because I, I remember, you know, I'm like on my calendar. I have a sit down with Angela today. And I'm thinking, how did I actually meet Angela? But I'm glad we met somehow. And we got to <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we met somehow. I mean, it's been great. Uh, and you're one of those women whom, when I got to meet, you're just so incredibly smart, so incredibly sharp. You always have a strong opinion, which I really love. You know, <laughs> you're laughing. I'm surprised because like you know when you don't know me that well like you can't tell right away sometimes I'm a bit low-key I'm quiet and I get that and then people have their own perceptions of people who are a little bit more on the introverted side I want you to take the opportunity to explain um, a little bit more about yourself I guess introduce yourself to our listeners and tell me a little bit more about you know your your background, your career background, and what's been going on for the past 10 years with Angela Di Carbaio. It really started when I was young, I wanted to be an interior designer. But, you know, being that young, when I'm, I was maybe like a teenager, and then fast forwarding till now, you know, you don't really know what that is. You don't know what that entails. You just think, well, from looking from the outside in, really like what I see on TV. I like uh, those types of things that I see on TV that people are doing. I want to do that someday. You don't realize that being a really creative profession, that it's not just creative. There's so much more to it. So instead of going straight into interior design, I just kept kind of working like working and feeling things out. Like my first job was at a Starbucks and then that evolved into banking and then, which is odd, but I was still studying architecture at the time. And then that evolved into, I wanted to maybe do project management, but just related to an interior design business. And I definitely knew I didn't want to do interior design. I just knew that I wanted to do something in between or related because I didn't think that being creative was going to be the best thing for me. I knew that it would bore me after a while. And I knew that even though you're in a creative field, you don't get to be creative. So it eventually evolved into being more of a client that works together with interior designers. And so I'm kind of that midway point and that's a really good place for me. After that, I don't know what comes.
listen, it all sounds really exciting because especially when you said, I really wanted to get into interior design, but then it didn't exactly take that very straight, narrow-ended road. Like I want to be interior designer and I went to school to be an interior designer. It, it deviated, which is which is what I'm finding for a lot of women in, in the professional, you know, corporate sector as well. A lot of us, we've all deviated. Like again, number one example here, I was a teacher and then now all of a sudden I'm a marketing manager. Like life takes its own roots. So how did you find, I guess, the transition from what you wanted to actually study and have your career set path in and then moving on into project management and now client development, restaurant development? How, do you, how did you find that transition for you? There isn't a straight path, mostly because what I do is not super common, I find, right. especially in Canada. Yeah. Um, you might be able to find more jobs like mine in the US or in Europe because there's more of a focus on design and people value it um, a lot more and will pay a lot more for it. When I think about whether or not I could see this and whether or not I exactly work towards it, I had an idea in my head of what I wanted, but I didn't know whether or not it existed. And so I would just slowly kind of stumble upon some of these things. And I would really take opportunities within the workplace to associate myself with really great people that I thought were smart and and kind. And they shared with me where they were going and what their ideas were. And I kind of pulled from that and tried to figure out what's right for me. Does It's not headed in the direction where somebody comes and mentors me and mm-hmm. I just follow their path. I never actually wanted to do that because I don't think that the path that other people have taken, even people who are extremely close to me, are exactly for me. That person is maybe like five, 10 years older than I am. And they might be a totally different person than I am, totally different demographic. So something that works for them just might not work for me. So it's interesting that you say that. So what I'm trying to gather is, are you pro or against mentorship in the workplace? I'm pro, but I also feel like um, you have to set expectations for them Mm -hmm. that you're not exactly going to do everything that they do. Yeah, you're not going to follow their life like step by step. You're your own person with your own goals. And, you know, mentorship, I guess for me, is somebody who helps with their experience, helps add perspective and wisdom to your life onto where you you want to go. I have, though, seen some mentors who take more of a um, dictatorial approach. <laughs> have you have you run into that at all with any of your past uh, workplace experiences? I wasn't looking for necessarily a mentor out of this person, but I was not happy with where I was um, working in this business. And the person who owned the business said to me, you're literally not going to get better experience anywhere else. And then I thought to myself, okay, this is like such a hyperbole, uh, this person <laughs> walking hyperbole. And uh, this is a red flag. If someone tries to put you down to make you stay, that's so yeah. unhealthy. It's a and good thing that I decided to leave. Yeah. And in what, in what industry was that in exactly? Uh, that was in residential design. How long did you do that for? Uh, the residential design, I did it for about a year. And that is um, something some of my colleagues have said to me, you get into interior design, it's maybe 
20% creative, 80% business. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that interior design wouldn't necessarily always be for me. And sometimes it hurts when someone kind of dumbs down that creative side of you because they're a client and they might not understand the process and all the things that you go through. They might not understand your vision because they want it to be their vision. You have to make sure you're communicating exactly what you want and giving people the chance to really provide you that service. That's why I liked uh, being in a commercial design setting. You can really have a chance to define your expectations for people, manage that communication, and they have a certain period of time to come back and deliver that to you. Does it always work out quite as neatly as that? Definitely not. No way have I ever, as a client or as a consultant working with a client, delivered things the way people wanted right away. It takes a lot more work, takes a lot of relationship building. And that's something I'm still learning. And there is one important thing that you mentioned right now, which is obviously the client. And there is this really important aspect of not just, you know, your day-to-day job of, of working and doing your own tasks, but there's the client management part of it, the client expectation management. Let's dive a little bit into that because I saw you. I saw you smile there. I know there are stories there. Tell me a little bit more about your client stories. Um, they're, they're really good clients and they're really bad clients. I think the bad clients um, teach you more. <laughs> they teach you more, but it teaches me how not to treat people while I'm a client. You have to really be patient with other people. You have to make sure you're communicating exactly what you want and giving people the chance to really provide you that service. That's why I liked uh, being in a commercial design setting because it's way more structured and you can really have a chance to define your expectations for people, manage that communication, and they have a certain period of time to come back and deliver that to you. Lay it on the table everything I want. And as a client, I'm looking for someone to say to me, I can do that, or that's actually totally unreasonable. I can't do that. And and sometimes people don't want to say the latter, right? They don't want to deliver bad news. Uh, one thing that I find really fascinating about your job is all of this multifacetedness of it, you know, all different sectors that you're bridging in together, in a sense. Talk to me about some of the creative projects you got to work on and what did that involve? Well, it depends on what regard I got to be creative. Yes, I kind of give people some uh, guidance. For example, something as simple as if somebody wants to design a chair to put in a restaurant, I have to continue to kind of drive that process. I can't design the chair for them. They're doing the work and putting together the chair and thinking, what fabric do I use? What color do I use? Um, what kind of frame do I use? What is the frame shape like? What is the, what is the seat in the back shape like? Is it is it ergonomic enough? Is the seat forward enough? How deep does he have to be? All these little things, I really depend on somebody else to think about first. But me having had experience knowing how to put together a chair myself, I can 
then take that design and say to that person, are you using the right fabric? Yes or no for an operational, for, for operational efficiencies? You know, is this uh, enough seat depth? Are we really taking into account whether or not we're designing this chair properly for the design intent of the client and what they want to do? So I really try and provide the guidance while someone else does all the really, really thorough thinking, but there's so much thoughtfulness that goes into it. Often really need more than one person to really think these things through for something as simple as a chair. Sounds ridiculous, right? But that's how design impacts people's lives. That's that's every time you sit in a chair in a restaurant, someone thought about it. And someone thought about it a lot. Thought about it. How long did they actually think about it? <laughs> like what's the life cycle of the project? It depends on the project, really. So, you know, there are projects that I've worked on that are, you know, upwards of tens of millions of dollars that were invested into it. And there are some other projects that were just, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that were invested into it. So the scope of the project varies a lot. If you're talking commercial projects, I mean, some of them take up to like two to four years to develop. And sometimes I haven't even been around long enough to see it fully develop because I've moved on to another job or something like that. But you kind of take some of the learning lessons here and there and you infuse that into your next experience and try to make sure that you're continuing to inform the next part of your career with what you've learned in the past. Yeah, I mean, honestly, everything that you're saying just sounds so... In a sense, it's it's kind of amazing to me and also made me take a pause for a minute when you said every time you sit in a chair in a restaurant, someone thought about that and they thought right. about it for a long time. Right. It's like it goes to show to everybody out there that, you know, these everyday spots that we go into, whether it's the coffee shop or the restaurants or McDonald's or wherever it is, and we sit in the benches and we sit on the chairs and or we stand in the aisle to order Every single facet of that design has been thought about by someone and someone like you. And that's why, to me, it's just so exciting to talk to someone like you because what you do is so different. What you do is is you synthesize information and you think about creative ideas and then you help people bring it to life, to actually bring it to life in physical form. That is actually a great way to put it, but I, I, I hate taking all the credit. There, just because there are so many people that put in the work and you have to do it so much. So again, that chair, there's me, there's the person designing the chair. There is, you know, all the operational staff that give their input. And then there's the person who actually makes it. Is there a person that makes just one component? Yes. Is there a person that makes the entire chair? themselves no way no it's it's like it's a village (laughs) yeah it's a village it's a it's a whole process and an entire team for sure but you know it's equally as important to shout out the leaders behind the vision and to ensure that you know that vision actually becomes a reality right otherwise visions just become visions without people who actually see them to execution right and sometimes i'm not patient enough to drive it till the end sometimes i do get fed up too Mm, tell me more about that. I want to know more about when you get fed up, you know, because you are in a senior, <laughs> right, you're in a senior position and, you know, you have a lot more, there's more weight to what you have to say 
And so how do you deal with that? And what have there been any ramifications for your lack of patience? <sighs> That's hard That's to say. That's such a hard thing to say. <laughs> but I'm still I'm still experiencing it day to day, every day. And um you it, it sometimes it really doesn't have to do with me. It has more to do with all the different personalities that go into it. Um, now, when I go into it, I try to be as understanding as possible that this person has a, they have, you know, other things going on in the background. There's back office things. There's so many other factors involved in whether or not people work together successfully. Um, so I have to really be mindful of that and think, am I being patient enough first? Am I being fair? And there are so many times when I was not the client, I had a client and I could see that they were being totally unfair. And and it's hard too when they don't know much about the work that you do, their expectation becomes so high. Um, and they think, well, it's just, it's just a chair, right? It's just a chair. That's all it is. You just sit on it. What's, what's the big deal? And then that's when things kind of go south. Everything you're saying 100% resonate with, but I really want to get back to that moment where you said that lack of patience. Sometimes <laughs> we all we all get it. And I, I sometimes feel it too, especially being in a position, again, a senior position where you're either leading a team or your, your say is the final say into getting something done, but there are certain factors that lag behind. From your experience, how do you work at those factors that lag the process of getting the project to execution, even though you know they could be done quickly and efficiently if this person just actually, or whoever it is, the team that's in charge of it, just actually gave it the time that it's that's required of it. Communication is such a big part of my role. So you have to make yourself as a person, personality, you have to make yourself open to other people. You have to make sure that people are not afraid to come and ask the questions they need to ask call you on the phone, send you a message, even text. And that starts to develop a relationship. But even before that, and just having like a higher level view of things, I make sure that when I'm hiring someone in the first place, that they are within a work environment that is reflective of the culture of my work environment. Because I don't want to hire anyone that is already frustrated because their frustration with their own work environment is going to reflect on the work, right? Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, some people don't perform because of that, right? And so I can't expect people to perform well if their workplace is just a huge mess. So that's the first uh, part of the process. Later on, I have to be, and and that's something that in other workplaces I didn't often have before, where people just thought, I'm the client, you do what I want, even if I was the client, right? Some people just thought that that's how it worked, that's how you communicate with people, but it's not. You can't. There are just some people that don't catch on to that and have these high expectations. And the ramifications of that are that people don't want to work with you and then they make you pay more if you want to work with them. Right. <laughs> and that's not, um, if you look at the market, you know, 
pe- people should know this is how much you pay in this market for this service. And if you're not smart enough and if you're not kind enough to people, people will overcharge you <laughs> for sure. just for the fact that they know that you're difficult to work with. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Which takes us back to something that you said earlier, which is you have to be personable, you have to be approachable, you have to be kind. And also ties us back to what you mentioned at the beginning when we started talking, which is that you consider yourself to be an introverted person. So right. how, <laughs> so much. how do you, how do you work with that? Because you, you know, I told you when I met you, you know, although I, I saw that you're not exactly a very extroverted person, but to me, you were personable to me, you were approachable and I was able to hit it off with you. Right. But you did mention that you perceive yourself to be somebody who doesn't necessarily um, hit it off with people right away because you're more introverted. So how do you work with that? Because obviously, and the whole point of all of this is to be able to guide women and be able to help women through our collective experiences. So if there's more women out there who are more introverted, who feel like, oh, because of my lack of extroversion, I can't network and I can't be personable with people and I can't build those kind of relationships. How did you work on it? So first, there's there's so many um, types of introverted, right? And I, I've mentioned this in conversation with you before in the past that I can be an extroverted introvert. An ambivert. <laughs> an ambivert. And I, I do try and turn it on and off when I have to. I try to just be conscious of my energy and w- what I'm investing that energy into on a daily basis, right? Um, and, I, and that's something that I was really poor at doing in the past. And I, I would constantly burn out. I would burn out and not be conscious of whether or not I'm taking care of myself and being mindful of myself. And then I would have to take long breaks and my work wouldn't be that great. And even I I felt sometimes that I was not only disappointing myself, but disappointing people around me that I respected and I cared about. So I really, really first had to be mindful of where where I'm investing myself in and whether or not that's that's how I want to really manage my time. Time management was so important to me when it comes to have to be in the mood, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, sleeping every night um, at a decent time, taking care of myself, sometimes even caring a little bit more about how I looked or how I felt every day. That was super important. Having a routine was important. And I hate to sound like super structured and, you know, like this control freak that always needs to be have their routine. But that's why the routine is important, not because you want to be in control of everything, but because you want to make sure you're at your best every day and you're giving your best every time you speak to somebody and trying to be thoughtful about, you know, all the things that they have to go through every day. And I think that a lot of people have this idea that having a routine or establishing a routine is something that's difficult you know, or that requires a lot more effort. But sometimes it's really just as simple as, like you mentioned, setting a a specific time for bedtime or setting, you know, that um, time to, to take care of myself, whether it's, you know, doing my makeup or doing my hair or going out for a walk. It's the simple things that we do every single day that are really part of a routine, but sometimes we don't realize it. 
or we don't label it because we're afraid of labeling it. And, and to not make it sound like I'm super structured or like super organized either, but I really do think that having a routine is very, it's very healthy and it keeps you, keeps your mind active, keeps you going and helps you take care of your relationships, not just like in your personal life, but also professionally, because we have to, like you said, we have to be on pretty much 90% of the time for work. I mean, that that does lead to another topic of conversation um, that I wanted to make sure that we do talk about. And it's that there's a certain expectation that you always have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm super guilty of having that expectation for myself even. So blindly, because I thought I can do this, like that, that's my attitude all the time. I can do this. I'm so determined I can get there, right? Right. You just have to be this perfect, perfect, perfect person in every single way, shape, and form. It's impossible. So I used to care so much more about how I looked and, you know, putting that smile on my face and just taking things as people serve them to me and always being on top of everything. And that's annoying. <laughs> yeah. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting for yourself and annoying for yourself, but it's annoying for other people too. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because, you know, people need others around them whom they can relate to and relate with. People need to to see that even, even when you're in a position like us, for example, where you're a little bit more senior in your role and, and you are at a point of influence and you're surrounded by a team or by clients, you still have to be personable in the sense to show them that I am still human and I'm not perfect 100% of the time. Because it is, like you said, it's annoying to be around someone who's always so cheerful or who's always got it together, right? And you keep mentioning this thing about um, that I'm in a senior position. And I, I don't even let that register sometimes. I don't think of it that way because in order to communicate with people and stand their level, you can't always think I'm this person that's, you know, up top. Um, and I don't consider myself that at all, even though I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, you should give yourself credit. <laughs> I know where you're going to go with that. But um, there are some people, especially in our industry, right, where the ego dictates so much. And you even asked me, do I think I'm successful? I can say relatively, yes, um, relative to, you know, demographic, like I'm female, I'm young, um, I'm a minority. Um, my family, I wasn't born into a lot of uh, money. My family's not very well off. So relatively, rel- relative to those types of things, yes, I'm successful. Do you- I think I'm actually successful myself. I don't because if I thought I was that successful, I would just stop here. I would I would just think, okay, that's it. My work is done. I, I'm successful, so I don't have to care anymore. Now, I love where your mind's at because it clearly shows, like, obviously you're ambitious and you want to keep going and you're driven. But at the same time, I wonder, do you think that a man would answer the question the same way? No, I don't think so. And how would they answer it? More ego? <laughs> um, it's hard to say because that's so general, right? Because I, I don't even think that my um, definition of success is a feminine definition of success necessarily. And everyone defines it so differently. 
I think on the outside, a man might say, yes, I feel successful. masculinity, And say, yeah, I'm super successful. But I don't have a problem in admitting myself as a woman uh, that I lack success. It just means I'm always striving for better. I make sure that I'm still pushing myself a little bit further, not not too hard um, lately, but still pushing myself a little bit more further because I'm representing different demographics that are statistically not likely to be successful. You know, you touched a very important point here, which is different demographics that are not statistically supposed to be successful. So I'd love for you to dive into that because obviously our listeners are not going to be able to uh, view um, video on this. So dive into a little bit more because you mentioned you are a minority and, you know, the statistics and how they work against you. Tell me more about that. Uh, I'll first say age because it's probably the least important. I just want to get it out of the way because, you know, things do come along with time. But I know that upon meeting me, a lot of people might look at me at first glance, look at my LinkedIn photo and think, she's kind of young, you know, can, can somebody that young be in power or, or have a say? And, and then you look at the fact that I'm female. I don't look old, no wrinkles. Like that's actually a comment that I've, I, I've talked to some of my suppliers about. They wonder how old I am because they don't see that I have any wrinkles on my face. So I'm not too old. And they also see that they can't figure out what my ethnic background is. And do I see that as a weakness per se? For me, no. Statistically, that might be, um, that may be considered a weakness when you look at it from another angle. But I've always taken so much pride in being multiracial. And I say multi for a lot of different reasons that I'll explain later. <laughs> but being multiracial, it to me helps me stand out. It creates an identity for me that uh, I don't think a lot of people identify with themselves. But I, I like that. It makes me an individual. I can provide a very different perspective than the person that is the norm, to use that term kind of loosely, that is the typical demographic in the role that I'd be in or, or a leadership role. I don't know if you've heard of this, demo, uh, this statistic, but statistically, people who are more successful or in, in leadership roles are taller. <laughs> oh, yes. I've heard of that. I've heard I'm of that. Short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shorter than a lot of people. So I have all these um, other things working against me. And, and, and plus, I'm not from, uh, I wasn't brought up in a really, really well-to-do family, particularly, right? So they, there are all these things that kind of work against me. But I don't think that I let that stop me necessarily. And to stop and let those things define me too much in a negative way really would keep me from helping other people do the same thing that are from a similar background to me. So tell me, like, I I want you to define it point blank to our audience. What's your background? There's actually no definition, really. I can say, you know, where my parents came from. Mm -hmm. So my parents came from Macau, which was a, uh, it was colonized. It's an, a peninsula um, just a little bit southwest of Hong Kong um, that was colonized by Europeans in the 1800s. 
the main group of Europeans that colonized. But you notice when I said multiracial, I'm not just saying I'm Chinese and Portuguese. A family tree on my dad's family because they had been there since the 1800s, 1900s. And when you look back at all the different ethnicities of all the people in my lineage, it's not just Portuguese and Chinese. So I can't say I'm just that. I do identify as those two ethnicities um, just for the sake of simplicity. Um, But I'm really, I've, through so many generations, I've been so many things. So that's what I mean by multiracial. I I feel like a lot of people are going to be able to start saying things like this. I don't know. Uh, I I haven't ever really gotten that personal with people. Yeah. um, Because that stuff doesn't really matter to me. (laughs) That's true. And nor does it actually really come up. They don't even care where you're born. Like, what's your real background, right? Like, there's the emphasis on what's your real, like, where are you really from? Because, you know, your look is different and your name is different. Mm. So where are you really from? <laughs> right. Do you feel and like, yeah. and the hair, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, so they're very confused when they meet me. Yes, it is confusing because you do like on, on a first impression, I would guess somewhere from East Asia, right? Mm. That's what I thought when I first met you. I would never, never would have crossed my mind that you're, you're mixed until I read your name, Angela de Carvalho. I'm like, that's a Portuguese name. <laughs> like, yeah. What's her background, right? It, it's a point of curiosity. Um, but at the same time, I wonder if for you, because your name is different and your look is different, did you face situations in the professional environment where, you know, before meeting a client, et cetera, there was an expectation, like maybe I'm meeting a Caucasian woman and then they meet you and they're like, oh, you, you know, where are you really from? Like, do you get that? I do get the comment about where I'm from. I don't find it offensive. I I encourage people to ask. And and I want people to ask because I want people to know. And it's not taboo to ask. Yeah. Um, now, if you uh, refer to what I look like in a derogatory type of way, maybe, because I've had somebody maybe call me oriental, maybe mm. like Right. <laughs> and, and a little bit derogatory, but I knew that person didn't really know that. So mm-hmm. I didn't put up a fight about it. But I really think it's important for people to talk about culture and and really immerse themselves in it. For sure. That's the only way to learn. It's the only way forward. So you have to ask the questions, right? And, and sometimes it's not exactly uh, safe to ask the questions in certain environments. Uh, but I think for me, it's okay. Um, I try to make it safe and I don't want people to feel like that's not something to talk about. No, it's it's up to us as ethnic minorities. It's up to us to be able to provide the answers and to educate uh, about our backgrounds. Because if people just keep assuming about you, nothing is going to change in the world. And right. if we're unable to have those conversations and, and educate people about our backgrounds and our heritage and where we come from, why my name is the way it is, you know, why I look the way I look, there's a reason behind all of that, that will provide a more educated, open-minded society. And that's the way forward. But I do want to tie this back into one other question that I think I'd really love to hear your answer to is, you know, we touched on 
the fact that you don't take offense to people asking you the, those questions, uh, where you're really from, etc. But I would love to know is if your, for example, your background or your look affected how people perceived you do the job? My ethnicity? Hmm. Uh, no, because my personality sometimes is too big for, for even the way I look. Yeah. And so that kind of goes out the window when you really get to know me. Um, but uh, being a woman, um, being a younger woman, yes. Being a younger woman. So it's the gender. It's the gender because people don't think before I open my mouth that I'm the boss or that I'm the one in charge or that makes right. those decisions. And I am, mind you, a very decisive person. I try to be for the sake of, you know, the people I work with so that they're not confused all the time. Right. But uh, before knowing that about me, before communicating with me and developing a relationship with me, I think people will always assume that the man in the conversation is the client. Mm-hmm. Not me. I'm just maybe his administrative assistant or something. And, and that's sad. But I try to make sure that my personality still shows it without being too aggressive or assertive. But I am a boss. But you're touching on so many really like so many good things here because you just said I try to show without coming across as aggressive or assertive. (laughs) Why is it that us as women, we have to pay attention to that all the time? I don't want to come across as aggressive. I don't want to come across as assertive or bossy or bitchy because, you know, there's a negative connotation to it when you're a woman. But when you're a man, being aggressive and assertive and all that means you're a leader, means you're strong, means that you've got this, you got your shit together. What is with that? And why do we always have to box ourselves in to constantly adhere to that way of behaving? What if it was okay for us to be assertive? Why not? What do you think? I'm just hypothetically asking because I'd love to hear, you know, devil's advocate arguments. I personally don't like myself not just as a woman, just as a person, as an individual. Mm. I don't like myself as being aggressive all the time. It's not great for Definitely me. Definitely not all the time. Right. Definitely not so all the time. For me, the way I feel um, about myself, it's not great for other people and how they, they're treated and how they feel and, and how it affects their day-to-day, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why I try not to be that. Okay. I'm what about assertive? I'm I'm certainly not afraid to do it. It's just it's innate in me. It's part of my personality. Um, but I'm also some there. There are different personalities you work with, right? And what if that person is far more introverted than I am, and that assertiveness comes out, and they're and it's too much for them. And it's not because I'm a woman, or it's not because they're a woman, or they're a man, or whatever it is. It just has to do with personality and comfort level. Uh, I, I just want to make sure that bef- when I start off a relationship with people, it's like not sort of from the get-go. You know, you you judge, not judge, I hate saying the word judge, but you really try to pick apart, you know, a person when you meet them in a way where you want to understand what that person can handle, what their comfort level is. Again, it's not just about me, right? Yeah. It's sometimes more so about every single person I speak with and how I interact with them and how I affect them versus what I want and, and all the things that I see and, and my vision. Right. 
For sure. And I think that you'll find that a lot of women place more importance on EQ. I wouldn't say place more importance, but they place an equal amount of importance on emotional intelligence uh, as, along with, you know, IQ. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to employ with your interactions with people. And I think this, for me, ties back into something that you mentioned earlier as well, which is you'll find that my definition of success isn't exactly um, the most feminine definition. What did you mean by that? Because we never really touched on what how you define success. Success sees no gender, right? That sounds, that sounds really um, such a corny line for and something that people would say lately to what my friends have taught me are garner them some woke points. There might be a preconceived notion of what is feminine success, but I don't know that I necessarily always fall into that. What is that definition? Maybe settling down and having kids. And then right. women will say, that's that's what is success to me, is my family and not career. Or some women might say, oh, I'm the best in my industry of, you know, a, an industry that's typically feminine, right? Or, or dominated by women, right? Yeah, that's dominated yeah. by women. Uh, and so the line gets blurred more and more, I think. It's not, it's not quite that way all the time. And, and that's a good thing. So maybe that's the wrong word. Feminine's, uh, a feminine definition of success is not the right word anymore. It's becoming uh, just a general sense of success depending on that individual. And, you know, it's funny because the reason, I guess, why we're, we're even talking about this is because you and I both come from industries that are heavily dominated by men. And so our definition of personal success has changed because of the industries we work in, because of the milestones we've been able to achieve as a result of working in these industries. I definitely have faced quite a few failures and challenges being in such industry, um, an industry that, in a sense, celebrates the accomplishments of men much more than the accomplishments of women. Or I feel, again, personally, that I have to work 10 times harder than my male counterpart to prove myself. Talk to me about failure. Talk to me about the time where, you know, you look back and you say, oh gosh, that one project or that one thing, that one thing that's failure in my mind, if I, if I could go back or, or what I've learned from it, you know, we, we all have that one thing that's really still resonated with us. What's that for you? I think there was like a good span of time and it was probably like around the time where I had met you. I can think of two instances of where I felt like I failed. Like, and I didn't just fail for other people. I failed myself where I had had to end a three month pregnancy. And I didn't really think that that was going to affect me so heavily because I have such a strong identity. I have such strong belief and confidence in myself I didn't know how much that was going to change me. And so I lost myself not being true to myself. And sometimes it was affecting my work poorly. And I wasn't really doing the things that I would normally do at the capacity that I would do it normally. So that was to me what felt like a failure because I ignored that was one big failure in my life 
where for a year or, or more, I lost myself. I didn't know who I was. I had no identity and I needed to get back in touch with myself after that. It definitely impacted some of my relationships, but luckily there were a good amount of relationships that like I was able to retain through that time. I, I can't say it's 100% me failing, but it was me failing to read a situation where I transitioned into a, a, a higher level of leadership role, but I don't think that business was ready for that. They weren't ready to take someone on that did what I did. They weren't exactly open to uh, growing the business, even though they had hired someone to grow the business. Right. In a client development role, right? That was your role at the time? Yeah. And there was a lot of turmoil and ego and things going on there that stuff like that, I cut it out. Hmm. I put it in a box and I put it away. Even if other people, that's what other people are doing, that's what I do. I put it aside. Are other people able to do that? No. And it eventually uh, caused this ripple effect of consequences that kind of just led to me going back and going, you know what, this isn't for me. I don't like it. And they said, yep, this is not for us either. And tons of people just left. And those are the two times when I felt in my life, I really, really, really failed. Failures that I had when I was younger, you know, that's due to lack of experience and a lack of maturity sometimes. And and that I can get over. These are instances in which I should have known, right? No, I should, I should stop and take a break. I should realize what a situation it really is like underneath the surface, I should have been able to read that better. But because I was a bit out of touch with who I was, it just flew over my head. I was just thinking, just be positive, just be positive, just be positive as an excuse for all the things going on. A little bit blinding. Yeah. And a little bit numbing too. Mm -hmm. Numbing of the experience. It's interesting that you put one of your very personal human experiences in the bucket of failure. Do you still think about it as a failure when you look back now, which, which is your first experience with, you know, the pregnancy? I was totally not tolerant, obviously. <laughs> it wasn't a great experience, but it taught me this is, you know, this kind of prepared me for the future and prepared me to even deal with and relate to other women that, um, you know, have the chance to have a child or even experiencing conceiving and, and the loss of that at times, right? My, now mind you, I did take the time to go to therapy and talk about it because eventually I really, really needed to talk about it. And this might sound pretty crazy for a lot of women. My therapist asked me, did, did you have a chance to grieve? And it wasn't the grief of the loss of a child that was more consuming. It was the grief of the loss of self. Yeah. I yeah, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. I knew I, I I had a feeling that it was the grief of, you know, of who you were. Right. Because you definitely, you know, when you go through an experience like that, you change after, right? You learn from it and then you change. You don't change 100%. You are still your own person, but it does change you in a way. And do you feel like it changed you 
in a positive way? In a lot of ways, yes. Um, and, and it does make me appreciate to um, myself and and what I'm worth. You know, I, like I said before, there were also times when I would want to be super perfect, like I used to be. Yeah. Where, you know, I looked perfect. I was the perfect size and the perfect shape and I could wear this and I could look like this. So it makes me appreciate myself beyond that perfection for my own imperfections, Hmm. which a lot of people are, you know, it's trending, but it's genuine. You know, I look at myself and I think, you know, do I feel better than I used to uh, about my body? Um, Do I have more energy? And, And the answer is yes, but that's because I'm being more mindful of myself. From everything that you've told me so far, it seems like you went through a hell of an experience, right? Because I, in a sense, I met you around that time. And I remember Mm -hmm. how you were during that time. And now a few years later, you know, here we are again, but you are different. And I feel like the Angela that I met at that time has now settled into her skin a lot more. (laughs) Am I I, I wrong in in my assumption? I think it, I think COVID actually helped a lot with that because I don't always have to be on display, especially in corporate environments where you have to be this kind of uh, put together, <laughs> always put together. together. <laughs> like, I'm so different than that. I used to dress differently, even where you know the environment I'm in. It's it's a little bit more laid back now. COVID changed things. I don't have to be 100 percent image, mental, physical, put together, I can just be comfortable. And a lot of people will say COVID was difficult. It's it's difficult from uh, one perspective, but really helpful from another, where I don't have to put in all of my time and effort and energy into, you know, these, yeah. I can really take that time and invest it in something else. Have you been investing it into, I guess, uh, anything new, like a new hobby or a new learning experience? I've been trying to invest that time into, you know, get, getting my routine together a little bit more. And that's that's the creative part of me, right? And it's not about necessarily like designing things. Thinking about, you know, what I'm really passionate about and whether or not that's it's something that would become a reality in my everyday work life. I should say, where what I do every day might not be my passion, but can I take that creative component of me and kind of box it into a certain part of my day for myself and kind of just, there, there's something that I that I learned recently, and I don't do this often enough, really write out all my ideas. And then the more I write about one particular idea, that's when I know yeah. that that's something that I should really be paying attention to. You know, I... I love talking to you because I feel like the conversation is never going to end. And there's just so much to talk about. But unfortunately, we do have to end this at some point. (laughs) And before we do, I wanted to ask you, perhaps younger women, women such as you and me who are ambitious and driven, but perhaps don't know where to go, where to start. So any words of wisdom to share? I actually had a conversation with somebody about this that worked worked in a coffee shop and she was a barista. And I I thought, well, I used to be a barista. That was my first job. It was really funny. She said, well, 
you know, what do I do on my LinkedIn to, you know, show interest in commercial projects and things like that as an artist? And I said, really think first, is that very you? Is that authentic to you? Because you you could totally get into it and, and do these commercial projects. And you may very well not like how you do that and putting your creative self in somebody else's hands. You're, you're virtually asking somebody to, you know, dictate what your worth is, your creative self. So, I mean, think about what's authentic to you first and don't think about what other people are wanting from you. And then it should really come a lot more easily. It doesn't really necessarily mean that uh, if you're not getting all of this work and getting all of these jobs that are really high end, it doesn't mean that you're not successful. Maybe that's just not something that's meant for you. So do it your own way. Don't do other people's way. I love what you said, because you said it might not be authentic to you. And I really love the use of that word in this situation, because I think a lot of people, especially younger people, will try to get into certain industries or certain careers because they perceive them to be successful, or uh, these are the types of careers that might give, like, get you a higher salary, more money, success, etc. They don't understand that once you actually get into it and you do the job as a nine to five every single day for an entire year and then beyond, how daunting it can be, how exhausting it can be, how there are so many multi different sides to it. It's not just about the creativity. It's not just about everything else that you want to do. There's so much to it. There's the client expectations and there's the client management and stakeholder management and project management side of everything. there's so much and it drains you. It really can be draining, right? So be creative. Yeah. Save it for yourself. I would (laughs) say save it for yourself. Don't let other people buy that. Are there any final words on perhaps how to get started? Any tips and tricks on what to do to go into, for example, an industry like yours that doesn't necessarily have a lot of women in it? The interior design industry has a lot of women in it. The real estate industry, not as much. I think uh, when I was really young, I was really timid and scared. I had a lot of fear. But what for, right? Well, you're, you're, are you scared that you're going to look stupid? Are you scared that you're going to fail, right? And and there really is nothing to be afraid of because there is such a big world out there. You're just this small fish, and that's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing that you're a small fish because then you have time and space to really put your feelers out there. So it's actually actively experiencing uh, that industry for yourself, at least trying to. And I know at this time it's very difficult to experience things, but you're not going to know if you like it until you really get there and experience it. And, and for me, how I've done that is just fearlessly putting myself out there and jumping into things, sometimes with little thought, and that's not really that great. We're <laughs> <laughs> not perfect, yeah. but I made sure that I didn't let my fears get in the way, um, that I'm not avoiding doing things because I'm scared of what other people are going to think or say, or if I don't fit in. I never in my life have ever really fit in. Yeah. Um, And I'm okay with that. I'm kind of happy about that because if I fit in, I wouldn't have a very 
original perspective on things and I wouldn't be the individual I am. And I love everything that you said. Don't let fear dictate how you go about your career, essentially. If it's scary, you might just have to do it. Just do it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Perfect note to end this. Angela, thank you so much for sitting down with me and being so authentically yourself and sharing some real raw experiences. It means more than you think. Thanks. It was great to talk to you today. 